0: Our show history on the back with Katie and Allie. So normally it would just be Allie and I hanging out with a couple of cocktails talking about famous women in history but sometimes we like to talk to women who are currently writing about history. We have a very special guest here
1: with us today Maggie Shipstead. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Nice to be here.
1: We're excited to have Maggie. She is an author of New York Times best-selling novels, Astonish Me, and Seating Arrangements, and is here today to talk with us about her new book, Great Circles. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Sure. Um, yeah. So my name is Maggie Shipstead, as you said, and I live in Los Angeles. I'm primarily a novelist. Um, Great Circle just out as my third novel, and then I also write for travel magazines quite a lot, or I did before the pandemic, and I'm hoping to again someday.
0: (laughs) That's great. Well, we're really excited to get into this book, Um, but before we get too deep into it, we have a cocktail that we made for your book. Um, So, Allie, what are we drinking? So, uh, this cocktail is called Great Circles, after your book, and what I did is I found a cocktail
1: online called The Aviation which is a cocktail we used a portion of for our um, Amelia Earhart, Amelia Earhart mm-hmm. episode. But I mixed it with some Hollywood flair by <laughs> adding uh, champagne and a cherry on top on a nice little cocktail pick. So it's two ounces of gin, a half an ounce of cherry liqueur, a half an ounce of creme de violet, and three-fourths an ounce of lemon juice topped with champagne.
0: So cheers to your Ooh, Cheers.
1: Cheers <laughs> to you and the book.
2: Cheers. That looks and sounds delicious. <laughs>
1: When we took a picture, it looked like this little airplane was
0: yeah, flying across the <laughs> <side. Yeah>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> And it's delicious, so it's good. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we mess up and it's terrible. But, oh, yeah, this is great. We've had some really
0: bad cocktails
2: in the past. Yeah, in college, we once tried to use up our leftover liqueur and it just tasted like barbecue sauce. I think it was the blue curacao. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. So let's jump right into it. This is a fictional novel, but the characters feel so undoubtedly real the entire time that I found myself Googling them to ensure that I wasn't missing some random woman from history that I had never (laughs) heard about. Um, So before we start with the actual people... This is a braided narrative that's set in two periods in history. Can you talk to us a little bit about the setting and what life was like for the women in your book in both those time periods?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the main thread of the book is about this fictional pilot, uh, Marion Graves, who's born in 1914. And uh, she disappears in 1950 while trying to fly around the world north-south. So she grows up in Missoula, Montana. She and her twin brother are raised by their sort of dissolute uncle um, in the 1920s and 30s. And she just knows when she, some barnstormers come to town flying biplanes. And she just knows in her core that she has to be a pilot. Um, And then she flies in Alaska in the 30s. And during World War II, she flies um, transporting warplanes in the UK. And then the sort of uh, other thread to the book is a modern movie star named Hadley Baxter, who her story takes place in 2017 or no 2014 sorry and um she's been in this sort of mega hit teen uh romance franchise kind of a twilight s thing and she's been dating her co-star and she's just under this um incredible public scrutiny as as celebrities are and sort of keeps lashing out by getting herself herself into scandals um and she is playing marion in a biopic about her movie so Um, Part of the purpose of her plot is to get at the unknowability of other people um, and how much is lost, you know, over time after we die. But also it was, um, you know, I didn't sit down and say like, oh, I I need to write a feminist novel to spread the feminist word. But I think once you start telling a woman's story, particularly someone like Marion, who... Um, in the 20s and 30s, is so motivated by freedom and movement. And this is what she wants more than anything. But the rigid expectation for women was to get married and have children. And so for her to lead an unorthodox life kind of takes constant vigilance um, and and some real sacrifices. And then Hadley, you know, living in, in a, a post-2000 world, has more opportunities, absolutely, but also this uh, constant scrutiny that she's under um you know there's no right way to be a woman or no right way to sort of perform being a woman and and she's sort of in some ways like trapped by that and and um sort of thrashing around against it trying to figure out what kind of life she really wants to lead yeah
0: well i think one of the most powerful things about the book is that one of the things that first grabs you is that you know you have hadley who like just comes across Marion as a young girl and she's like oh my gosh like this girl's exactly like me, you know, like raised by my uncle. And then as the book kind of moves on, you find out more and more about both of their backstories and kind of why they are the way that they are. How did you come about developing those backstories? Did it come really naturally or was there, were there specific things that you knew you wanted to include? So I
2: never plan or outline my books. Um, I just kind of have to start. So it was sort of news to me two years into writing this that it was going to be as long and complex (laughs) as it was. And it used to be longer. My first draft was about a quarter again as long. Um, But yeah, it unfolded fairly organically. I had the idea of Marion first. Um, I had seen a statue at the Auckland airport of this aviator, Gene Batten, who's the first person to fly solo from England to New Zealand in 1936. Um, and, and that just kind of made me be like, oh, I'll write a book about an aviatrix. Um, and I sat on that for two years before I really started working in, in 2014. Um, and then just kind of, I, I'm pretty motivated by plausibility. So I had to start being like, well, how would <laughs> you become a pilot? And that, drove a lot of the plot. And I have the idea for Hadley, um, sort of secondarily, I'd been working maybe for a month and just wrote a piece of her story, where she's kind of publicly cheating on her movie star boyfriend. And on the surface, it had nothing to do with Marion. But I just felt these two things had to intersect. And so I sort of um, slowly built hers. But I wrote the book pretty much in a linear way as it is although there was some rearranging and then the structure shifted a bit like now marion's flight around the world is all kind of one chunk near the end of the book but there was a version where it was kind of interstitially put in throughout the book and it was just sort of one too many threads to expect people to hang on to
1: and i'm Along with Marion, the reader is kind of traveling around the world as well. We spend time in Hollywood, and we spend time in, you know, the Prohibition U.S., and we spend time in London during World War II. Did you have a selection process in your brain for, like, time periods you wanted to depict or was it just like that sounds interesting
0: (laughs) yeah I mean
2: some of it came up as I went along I'd often find things in my research that would then sort of determine the course of the plot I do I like I said I don't I don't plan but I do always have kind of some waypoint out there so from the beginning I knew I wanted Marion to transport planes during World War II but it took me a little while to make the decision to send her to the UK to do it there's also um Sort of an all-female unit in the U.S. that that transported planes, um, and the one she flew with in the U.K. was was both men and women together, um, and more international. So I had that sort of sort of out there. Um,
0: did I answer your question? I've now <laughs> yeah. lost track of it. Okay. <laughs> and in terms of these two characters, did you have any particular person that you were really drawing on? Because obviously, like people are going to immediately think of Amelia Earhart when they think of Marion, but is she more of like an amalgamation of a lot of different aviators that we don't talk about as much? <laughs> Cause with the yeah. storming, I thought about
1: Bessie Coleman immediately. Oh, yeah.
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, something that's so interesting is that, um, I'm excited you guys did an Amelia Earhart episode. I'm going to listen to it the second we get off. But um so oh, sorry. We can <laughs> it
0: with John JonBenet Ramsey. So just be prepared. Oh, yes. <laughs> There's really? <good> episode.
2: <laughs> You're speaking my language. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's really fascinating how Amelia Earhart's kind of the only female pilot who remains a household name and like little kids dress up as... As for Halloween, on my publication day, my agent and my editor sent me a singing telegram that was a woman in an Amelia Earhart
0: costume.
2: And it was a total nightmare. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, so, but at the time, you know, there are all these women who are, who are very famous for flying and people are just paying attention to flying, particularly in the twenties, you know, like these records for speed or altitude or endurance would be front page news. And, and so there are a lot of women out there doing it. Um, yeah. As you mentioned, Bessie Coleman, the first licensed black woman, um, uh, Eleanor Smith was famous. She was the youngest licensed pilot in the U S at 16. And she sort of immediately set altitude records and, she was also very savvy. She used publicity. She didn't really care about publicity except that it allowed her to keep flying and secure funding. So she flew under all four bridges on um, the East River in New York as sort of a stunt. Um, Beryl Markham the first person to fly the Atlantic against the wind. So East to West. Um, Amy Johnson, first woman to solo from England to Australia, um, I think in about 1930 so all these all these people were so famous, and I think are've forgotten just because their ends weren't as spectacular as Amelia Earhart 's or as shrouded, mm-hmm. although i mean i don 't know what conclusions you came to. I think it's almost absolutely certain she just crashed in the ocean and died, like yeah. everything is way too far away. All the photos that surface are utterly ridiculous, like the things they find on these atolls are like, whatever, you found a jar, you know? So, like, to me, it's, it's almost disrespectful to, like, the tragic end of this actual human being, that it's become this cottage industry of what really happened, and they're not searching for what really happened, they're searching for a way to keep the question open. Um, So, I would always get a little, like, prickly when people, I'd say, I'm writing about a female pilot, and people go, oh, Amelia Earhart, and I'm like, but, At the same time, I mean, she was part of the basic inspiration because I am very interested in why we process disappearance and death differently when they're often and sometimes obviously the same thing. Um, I really want to write an essay called What We Talk About When We Talk About Amelia Earhart.
0: (laughs) Well, I think that was one of the reasons we paired her with JonBenet Ramsey because it's kind of a similar thing of like, people just cannot stop talking about these one is a girl and one is a woman but you know people can't stop talking about it and like they have spurred these insane conspiracy theories that you're right kind of like people think that Kate or um Katy Perry is <laughs> is <John> Benet <laughs> Ramsey I didn't know that <laughs> like, no That's I a- have very real parents and, <laughs> but you know and it kind of seems like you're right like disrespectful to these women like to these people to be like well, maybe they didn't, maybe they didn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe she ran away to an island. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and but- I mean, in terms of
1: Hadley, you, you mentioned Twilight, and I kind of also got like a Miley Cyrus vibe and a Fifty Shades of Grey vibe. Was there, were those the type of actresses that you were drawing on, like people who just have been largely disrespected for roles that they've chosen?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um I mean I was thinking of, of Kristen Stewart a bit. I don't there was like a a scandal that's now sort of gone away where she was photographed making out with the director of one of the Twilight movies when she was with Robert Pattinson.
0: Um yeah, Trump was very mad about it at the time. <laughs>
2: oh, that's right. Yeah, I forgot that <laughs> aspect. Um and I mean, I think you see it like in like in the Britney Spears documentary where you in retrospect, seeing the things people say about these women with absolutely no compassion for their position or their youth or the unbelievable pressure they're under. And and I think, you know, if we make mistakes, um, it can be really hard to face recrimination from people we know, let alone from millions of strangers. So, yeah, I was I was interested in kind of all of that that generation of, of female movie stars and um the the sort of ever-shifting ever-constricting uh spotlight on them
0: Mm, yeah and so obviously we have a lot of women dealing with also just like ideas of womanhood and one of the most interesting characters is kind of a I mean a smaller character but it's um Marion's mother who we have this kind of sequence in the beginning where she is a new mother, and she does not want to be, and she's dealing with a lot of emotions. Did you want to make any specific point about postpartum depression and motherhood with this character? Because it's so relatable for women who have gone through that hmm
2: Yeah, this character Annabelle, I th- it comes so early in the book, I don't think it's really a spoiler to say is is molested yeah. by her father <laughs> and, her up. and like, yeah, <laughs> it's like you know, page like twenty-five. Um as <laughs> uh, is molested by her father and and obviously is profoundly traumatized by this, and also completely as many Victorian women were just uninformed about sex or anything, is trying like left to her own devices to to make sense of this. Um And I I have this now very eclectic research library. And so one of my books was just called Nymphomania. And it's about just sort of the notion of nymphomania, whether or not it's a real thing. I don't know, you know, but the description of how um, women, Victorian women and, and thereafter for a while as well, who sort of displayed any sort of sexuality were treated in these sort of barbaric, like, putting leeches on, you know, their genitals or prescribing cold baths and bland foods, just all these things, this sort of almost um, just medieval sense of being able to drain sort of the, the sexuality out of a person. And, and in this character, Annabelle, it's so profoundly confused and so associated with trauma that when she finds herself, um, pregnant and then giving birth, it, the trauma is really only heightened. And of course there's no means for her to get any kind of help or, mm-hmm. or, um, understand her own situation at
0: all. So yeah, it's a fairly grim part of the book, but it's not very long, so. I know, it's not, but it doesn't like have some of my favorite, like, and that sounds really bad to say, but like there's this one line where it's so good because like nobody's talking to her about sacking like, well, you have a cabbage and he has a carrot. And she's yes. like, I don't know why I'm being punished. <laughs> That's something to do with vegetables. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. And it just really encompassed like how just how frustrated women must have been in that time period of like something's happening and no one is telling me about it. No one is talking. Like and I just felt like, I don't know, I just love all of the the little dialogue like that, that really make these characters. Just uh, yeah, so
2: mm. absolutely baffling. And, you know, reproduction is not necessarily intuitive, like maybe <laughs> sex is in the basic act, but even in like uh, Bridgerton, nobody bothers to explain to her, you know, like how yeah. you actually get pregnant. And I got, I have to think there are just millions and millions, and millions of women who lived that way and had just a series of real surprises. Oh, yeah.
0: Like <laughs> my, my grandmother was one of them. She got married at like 16 and then <laughs> it's like, I'm pregnant. And they're like, got <laughs> they have sex? And she like, yeah. And they're like, that's, that's how it happened. The happens. two things.
2: Yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, <It's>
0: yeah. <laughs> so did
1: your relationship with these characters change as you were writing? Because I mean, I can't imagine, but I'm sure as an author, you're spending time with these people and they become your friends. Were there moments that you were just like, yes, I love this. I'm so down for it. And then moments where you're like, I can't believe I have to write that Hadley is doing this.
2: Oh yeah. I mean, well, the drafting, the first draft was, took over three years. So there are just plenty of moments where I was like, I can't believe I have to do this (laughs) full stop. Like I really just had to focus on it in a day by day way. I think, you know. part of what drives revision as I'm going along, like what I have to go back and fix is just this process of getting to know the characters. You know, when you've spent years with them, you have a different perception of them than when you're just sort of like, this is a feral child in Montana and the (laughs) teens. Um, And so you sort of have to go back and and try to make the character consistent while at the same time you're building off what you've already written to sort of create um, their future. Hadley I think just I had her voice from the beginning and so the one of the challenges was really maintaining the voice and the sort of intensity of it um and with Marion my relationship to her changed a little bit as well because I, I started travel writing while I was drafting the book and the two things really started to feed off each other I did more sort of adventure travel um I went to the polar regions I went to Antarctica twice and the Arctic Five times, I think, um and so my own experiences of risk and of these landscapes and of meeting people who are more like Marion who have sort of this adventure drive um started to inform uh her and also sort of change the basic facts of my life, so it was this really sort of inextricable uh real life connection with the book and and I'm not like Marion in some ways, um but certainly my experiences uh you know, started to saturate her. Yeah.
1: yeah. I keep, um, I keep like a little journal with sparklets, which are we, this other podcast <laughs> that we listen to does it, but like just phrases or words that stand out to you in your day. And from um, Marion's flying journals, I feel like I wrote down like 15 things? I was like, (laughs) what an interesting phrase.
0: (laughs) Well, and it kind of sounds like in the beginning, like you were doing your own travels and then that was kind of informing Marion. but did, when you were kind of developing her character and like where she would potentially go in her travels, did that make you kind of pick other places to go for research?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I went both ways. I mean, sometimes it was coincidental. Like I went to the Cook Islands before I really was writing the book just because I had a layover there. And then when I was picking her route around the world, which would have been, this fight would have been difficult, almost impossible in 1950. And so sort of, I had to be strategic about, um, where she went. So they happened to be along this line of longitude. So great, you know, I'd had a setting, but like the, the polar stuff, um, because I, I conceived of her flight at the very beginning of writing, I was like, I, I don't know that I can imagine these places accurately. So I did really seek them out. Um, And so I'd pitch these stories to my magazine editors where I'm like, it's an abandoned wasteland of cold and darkness. And (laughs) and every once in a while, you know, one would go through and then gradually they learned that I liked these places. And so when one of those assignments came up, they'd be like, hmm, let's ask Maggie, you know. Um, So, yeah, I, I was really really motivated to get there. And Antarctica, I wrote a modern love about how I got to Antarctica the first time. So if anyone's interested, they can Google that. (laughs) Um, I was dating someone who ran expeditions, tourist expeditions down there. Um, And then I went again on a, on a more straightforward magazine assignment, um but Wait, are you saying you've been to Antarctica not
1: once
0: but twice
2: I've been to Antarctica twice yeah <laughs> have
0: you met Ann Daniels or <laughs> <laughs>
2: um but even with that like when you go on a ship you know you see the edge of the continent which is spectacular and stunning and wants to kill you but I, I knew that in Marion's flight, the interior of Antarctica would come into play. And that's, you know, you can get there as a tourist, but it's just it's prohibitively expensive. It's like tens of thousands of dollars. Um and so, but I really want to see it. And so what I did was I had a story for Outside magazine about our National Guard unit that does all our polar airlift. And in the northern winter, southern summer, they're in Australia or Antarctica. And when the other season they're in Greenland, um, practicing. And so I flew on a cargo plane from New York to Greenland, um, and we we're there for a few days. And then we landed on the Greenland ice sheet, which looks exactly like Antarctica because it's a perfect flat disc of white, you know, with this dome of sky over it and such a simple image, but I couldn't have really like imagined the feeling of it. Like just this strange, like you're can feel you're standing on the skin of the earth and you're standing on thousands of feet of ice and so something like that I just I really felt I had to see and then in the end I was really glad I did well that's why
1: you had us all googling whether or not <laughs> <laughs> whether or not this is a real story
0: because <laughs> it re- I mean really yeah because I feel like you don't get those types of descriptions quite as on point If you haven't seen it often. And those are specific things that like very few people in the world get to see. And it really felt like, oh, this isn't someone who like Google image searched (laughs) Antarctica and then wrote about it in a book. This is someone who really gets the um like you're right the emotion behind actually seeing it which is what you know this fictional character of marion would have been experiencing
1: <laughs> also in terms of sparklets i'm gonna have to name my never coming memoir spectacular stunning and wants to kill you yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> i'd read it <laughs> never say that authors are you know morally obligated to go to the places they yeah. write about it is possible you know and of course it's a tremendous privilege to have had sort of the or have or finangled the means to to have seen these places and have the time which of course is also connected to choices I've made about my life like I don't have kids my parents take care of my dog <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah it was it was incredibly helpful mm. so what um
1: in terms of research on um, pilots, like was there a lot of research you had to do to make sure to get that right, or have you always been like a fan of aviation?
2: No, not at all. Um, I've never been particularly interested in planes. <laughs> I am much more now, and I have, I have much deeper appreciation for them. Um, my brother is just now leaving the air force after twenty years, and he hasn't flown for a while, but. He was a um a C-130 pilot, a four-propeller cargo plane. And so he was one of those kids that was obsessed with airplanes and could sort of identify them flying over and, and everything about it. So it was always kind of his thing, and I just didn't really think about it that much. Uh, but airplanes were always sort of present. And so he was really helpful when I... Um, first had the idea for the book and and you know asked him to sit down with me and, and just look at the globe and be like so which way would you go like the year is <laughs> 1950 like what are you what are we thinking about and then he helped me choose what kind of plane she would fly um and I had him read bits and pieces of it as I went but um primarily I just I read books you know I read books by and about pilots I read some te- more technical books like in semi-instructional books for early pilots. Um there are a lot of YouTube, of course, is a huge resource. There are instructional videos from, you know, uh World War II or Cold War sort of pilot training. Um I as much as I could, I went for flights in weird planes. Like I um landed on glaciers several times just different than the ice shoot experience but also just sort of that sense of an airplane landing on skis it's really different there are no brakes you have to reverse the <laughs> engine um and flew in a glider helicopters things like that so I s- started to get a better sense of um I don't know I think on a commercial airliner you know you're looking at the side And in these flights, I got to look at the front, which makes a big difference. And just sitting next to the pilots and seeing what they're doing and how every sound the plane makes is connected. Um, But I also came to appreciate just the incredible acceleration of technology that happened. Like Charles Lindbergh, you know, flies across the Atlantic in 1927 and then basically like a basket with wings. Like (laughs) when you see the spirit of St. Louis and the... Smithsonian, it's like impossible that someone would have flown across an ocean in it. But then he was present for the launch of Apollo Eleven, um, and was there. You know, I think there's some statistic that that launch, the amount of fuel used in the first second, was more than the fuel he used on his entire flight. So just going from from one thing to the other in the course of one lifetime, I think, is really um, moving and sort of one of the preoccupations of the book was scale, both geographical and and time. And so that sort of played into it too, my interest in how flight kind of moved human history forward. Yeah.
0: Now, is there a part of the book that was really easy to write? And you're like, I am breezing through these chapters. (laughs) And was there a part that you were kind of slogging through of like I just want to ignore that but I know I have to do it eventually
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean I'd say the Hadley chapters the movie star chapters were the easiest because they're now um and I live in LA and a lot of my friends work in Hollywood and I was also sort of intentionally playing with um Hollywood aspects of Hollywood that are already familiar and I there's kind of a me too moment that I wrote before the Weinstein story broke but I think you know something about the Harvey Weinstein story is like no one was surprised. It was both a huge bombshell and not a surprise at all. And I think there's a lot about Hollywood that's like that, like that feels like cliche, but is also true. Um, and uh, then the hardest sections to write were always the historical or technical ones. and And they just kept arising. Like I would decide that Marion's brother, Jamie, would be in the Aleutian Islands in World War II. And then I'd be like, oh, no. You know, and <laughs> go online and find some used, you know, self-published memoir about that the Battle of Attu or whatever and um, sort of start piecing it together. Or I just, you know, think about a house in Missoula in the 20s and then it's like, Would it have had a bathroom? Would it have had electric lights? Like, all these little details that I don't want to assume. Um, So I was just endlessly trying to track those things down. And and it was just, you know, all the historical stuff, writing that was like swimming against the current. Um, But on the other hand, I would come across things that would then spark something else and be interesting and exciting. Like to use Marion's brother as an example, again, I didn't realize that there were um, combat artists earlier. Really, I never thought about it in world war II and came and, and, in later conflicts. Um, I came across it, a documentary. And so every branch of the armed forces recruited artists and gave them this mission to capture the spirit or essence of war by whatever means and just sent them out kind of wherever they wanted to go and they made these paintings and drawings and um, many of them are really spectacular. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah well I noticed that the dedication in the front was to your brother and I was going to ask why but you told us. (laughs) (laughs) It's really sweet. Does he know that yet? Has he read it the whole thing?
2: He is reading it now, I think. Um he we waited till it had the hardback. But yeah, he I showed him the dedication when it went into page proof, so it was all types of I think um yeah, it really touched him. I did a, a book event the other day on Zoom and one of the last questions was like tell us what you think about sibling, like love between siblings. And I just like, couldn't keep it together. I was like, oh, oh yeah. Oh, it's a yeah. really nice thing. Yeah.
0: yeah. As sisters of brothers here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like really holding out that my, my last brother is getting married. He's going to ask me to be his best man.
2: <laughs> I mean, just send him the link to this. <laughs>
1: okay. His fiance will listen.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> So, where can people find you? Where can they find this amazing book? I'm sure at this point they are ready to just jump in <laughs> to these two ladies in their lives.
2: Um, well, the book is available pretty much where books are sold, um, particularly at your local independent bookstore or bookshop.org. Um, but all the other large, large retailers are exist
0: um
2: I am online my main social media presence is Instagram where I am at Shipstead just my last name Um, and then I have a website that's also just my name www.maggieshipstead.com, and that's where a lot of my travel writing is um more information on the books and some videos and other fun stuff
0: perfect well we're so excited for everybody to go out and buy it I actually was walking through Target last night and I saw your book on the shelf oh <laughs> heck yeah nice like, oh my gosh I was like I'm talking to her tomorrow I had like a little like celebrity moment I was like I can't believe it so so I bought my hard copy last night even though like I had a we have a copy, copy. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I love it buy that hard I was cover. really
0: excited so uh, we can't wait for everybody to go and read it And we're just so thankful for you for sharing your time and your stories with us it was just such a blast I don't think it was a joy